When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. How are you, Trish Wood? I'm really good. And you know what? I'm super good because I watched some of your Evergreen College stuff. And Evergreen College has been a bit of an obsession of mine. So um, hmm. I, I, it was ter- it's terrific work. Your documentary is terrific. And hmm. I think it's so important that you did it. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, why would you be obsessed with Evergreen? What fancy of yours does it tickle? Uh, to me, Evergreen and what happened there kind of represented in a sense the fall of critical thinking leading into this period we're in now where critical thinking is not only not done by most people but it it scares people and the people who do it are frequently criticized and punished for it so evergreen felt like the kind of the canary in the coal mine mm-hmm. you know the you know the the microcosm of what was to come later mm-hmm. that that's uh, how i felt about it. Was there ever a time where critical thinking ruled? I was thinking, you know, it's difficult to actually gauge to what extent any era was dominated or controlled, not by emotion. And, you know, in our domain, by which I mean media now, there was this Walter Cronkite era where the uh, arbiter of the news (laughs) had a rationalization, or not rationalization, but a a rationality, a proportion, a a certain sort of gravitas, or at least bearing, uh, that is lost now in those major media centers. And then people have to come through like you and I and other people have to come through and do our best uh, to make up for that or to try to pull pull down the reins or redirect attention in a more mature way. So that's a really interesting question, um, because I do a lot of media criticism on the show, as you know, and I had a big career in uh, journalism as well for like 30 years, top of the game here in Canada for a really big show that was like your 60 Minutes or Panorama in the UK. I was a big investigative journalist. And because I criticize the media so much, now people say, well, was it better in your day? And it actually was better in my day. I felt that in the kind of late 70s, 80s, and 90s, when I was really active, um, most journalists, or many journalists, saw themselves more allied with working class people. We didn't see ourselves really as part of the so-called, you know, elites, right? And so, and and I feel that if you're going to default and be not totally objective, which is really hard, you have to default to the powerless people. And 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 so I, today, I feel very strongly that journalists identify with the power elites. They support narratives that are top-down narratives, right? And so that's a big difference. Was Cronkite perfectly objective? Of course he wasn't. You know, he was. He he represented sort of the middle ground of what was happening in America in those days. But he didn't say, as journalists do today, and I only learned this a couple of years ago. I think Matt Taibbi made it clear to me in an interview once. I really had to struggle with it. 
that at universities and in J schools, they're actually saying you don't need to even try to be objective. Have a social justice idea behind the stories that you're doing. Use that as your filter. Run your thinking through a social justice narrative. And and that's the way we should be doing things because that's the moral thing to do. And the problem with that, as you know, is that that means that somebody is actually deciding the morality of the world. They're deciding what the narrative is going to be. And that means that journalism isn't working for many, many people in the world. And it certainly isn't right now. I mean, we're seeing that with Ukraine, too, which I'm I'm sure we'll get into. But, Mm. you know, I don't think the media was ever perfectly objective. I, I think the word maybe is is neutral, you know, that you enter into an idea about a story and you go where the facts lead you. Now, the facts that you uncover are facts you uncover because you're asking certain questions. So, of course, total objectivity mm-hmm. is lost even in that moment by the questions you ask, right? You're, you can only know what you ask questions about. But I'll give you an example about something I did then that couldn't be done today. Well, the, my, my coverage of, of Tony Fauci could never be done today. And it was certainly, you know, it won a ton of awards and it was considered a little bit outlying, but it was outlying in a good way, right? So I'll tell you the Fauci story. Um, The Fauci story is that um, I was covering AIDS and doing a lot of documentaries about AIDS in the late 80s. And Tony Fauci was king. And I would go to the AIDS conferences in, I went to one in Montreal, and then one two years later in San Francisco, they were huge events. All the big people were there. There was a huge audience that would come. And every year they would say, uh, there's going to be a vaccine a year from now. Every year, every, every, every AIDS conference, they would say that. And the media would dutifully report the headline in the New York Times. Gina Collada, their medical reporter who's still working today, would dutifully write the headline that there was going to be an AIDS vaccine in a year, which we still don't have, right? But the focus was the same. The focus was vaccine, vaccine, vaccine. Um, The idea that they should be looking at repurposing old drugs as therapies came along much later, and it was pushed on Fauci by clinicians. And the big story for me, and this was personal for me, was the story about uh, when the clinicians like Joe Sonnabend, who was a genius uh, doctor of, of gay men with AIDS in New York, discovered with other doctors treating gay men with AIDS that um, Bactrim worked as a prophylax for PCP pneumonia, which was a very bad pneumonia that you were di- you died of if you got AIDS. It was a terrible death sentence. And Bactrim would work as a prophylax if given at the right time to prevent you from getting it, right? So they knew this. It was working in doctors' offices all over the United States. So they wanted Tony Fauci, who is in the same job he's in now, to announce that in a bulletin of some sort that doctors should start prophylaxing patients with Bactrim, which was a harmless, kind of like an antibiotic, but a sulfur drug, uh, in their patients who might get PCP pneumonia, right? Tony Fauci wouldn't do it. They went to see him, uh, Sonnabend went, a guy named Michael Callan went, he became a friend of mine, he was a person with AIDS, and begged Tony Fauci, begged him, begged him to put out a bulletin saying to doctors treating people with AIDS, use Bactrim to prophylax for PCP, he would never do it. I went to see Tony Fauci and did an interview that was pretty rowdy, 
because we did the kind of Mike Wallace interviews in those days. You know, we were tougher. And um, and his answer was there had not been enough good long-term, perfect, double-blinded, placebo-controlled uh, trials for this drug. But people were dropping like flies. So there's a point where you say, in order to save lives, I'm going to do something that makes just makes sense, right? Was there any My, um, uh, negatives for this pro- prophylactic? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. There, I mean, Bactrim is a pretty safe drug. It was, it had been around for a long time. It had a really good safety profile. That that was not the argument he made at all. And um, what happened was that Michael Callan, uh, he. I think he had AIDS for 11 years. He was a very long, long-term survivor, which was unusual in those days. People didn't live that long. When he was dying, I did an interview with him in New York. And I remember sitting in this penthouse hotel room, a beautiful hotel. I think it was an Ian Traeger hotel, actually, really stylish, beautiful. I remember the scene very clearly. And um, the big regret of his life of all the things that had happened to Michael Callan was that Tony Fauci would not approve Bactrim uh, or send out a bulletin notifying people. He couldn't approve it, but send out a bulletin for people to use it because we knew by then tens of thousands of gay men had died as a result of not getting a chance of having Bactrim through their doctors. So he was bewildered by that. He was bewildered by a guy who was so rigid in his thinking hmm. that he wouldn't budge on that issue. So I was allowed to tell that story, and I told the story in documentaries on CBC radio, and um, one prize, I don't know if I won a prize for that story, but it was certainly highly praised. I could never tell that story today because Tony Fauci and negative coverage of Tony Fauci is verboten. It's just not really allowed in the mainstream media in that way. I mean, it's shocking, right? The, the, it's almost an equal template. You know, his, his uh, fascination with getting a vaccine over treatment, same story. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they kind of blend in together but i couldn't tell that story if i was at cbc today they wouldn't let me i'm sure of it Mm. no without repercussions even if you went uh the independent route then you'd be routed out right from polite society well absolutely and and just sort of getting back to your question about you know was journalism better in those days i i do think that it was and i i think it was for a bunch of reasons one of them is that i think people were more curious they did think more critically about the world Um, one thing that covid and covid reporting did was it ushered in a period of time where journalists seem to think their function is to uh, take dictation on public health press releases and spew them out without any critical thinking about it, right? It's, it's as if no pharmaceutical company ever made a drug that killed people. It's as if they're all above board. They've never done a bad thing or been involved in a court case or, you know, Pfizer was never taken up on a criminal charge, actually, and paid a huge uh, fine for uh, well, what The biggest they- in history. The biggest in history, right? But so, so th- there's that that kind of thinking that we need to be careful when we're injecting everybody with a, a a product that's had a limited amount of testing, and the idea that one would say, well, let's do a risk benefit ratio around this. Yeah, we'll give it to people who really need it, who may die if they get COVID. But why would you, it's beyond me why you would give that vaccine to a child. Even now we know that it's not even preventing transmission really from Omicron in a serious way, right? But you can't have that discussion. It's like, 
the idea that the media acts as a bulwark against um, regulatory failure and and corporate mm. malfeasance is gone. Right. You, that's not how they see themselves now. Mm. So that has a- absolutely changed. And the other place you can see that is I don't know if you've seen this Boeing documentary that's on Netflix right now. You should watch it. It's extraordinary. Rory Kennedy did it about the planes that were the two planes that fell out of the sky for the same reason, you know, and the uh, and, and what Boeing knew and when they knew it and how they covered it up. That story should have been front page news for a year. And it wasn't it didn't get the same attention mm-hmm. so yeah things have changed there you, you brought up uh that the journalist should be on the side of the downtrodden and the powerless people and the odd thing about uh, sorry there's this term called wokeness and it's a very fuzzy term it's very ambiguous but the problem with this moral social justice morality that is promulgated by the media uh, is that it represents or it stands on behalf of the most marginalized in a very specific sense so they are like representing or championing the most marginalized but for some reason at the same time they're doing that it's completely in line with the powers that be it's it's dressed up or it's modified so that the powers that be allow them to virtue signal the the journalists let's say they can go around and virtue signal all these different things about these different groups at the same time as you don't misrepresent or you don't tangle there's off off limits uh you know topics and uh criticism doesn't go in this direction but it can go in the direction of i guess let's just i'm pulling it out of the hat like something that would represent the status quo and so far as like patriarchy or the white man right yeah so those people the white man the white middle class end up becoming the brunt of the ire of these people who are representing or trying to represent the most marginalized and also are being liquidated um the middle class specifically is being liquidated by (sighs) the corporate elite so in a weird way you have to kind of actually kind of do this math or this kind of dance to say to how do you how do you um defend the assertion that the middle class are the most downtrodden when in fact they can't be because they are the middle class so yeah right? the, the truckers is a good uh blue collar they're still middle class and in, in, uh, i guess oh, they make money like yeah, i, I asked i was you know these guys driving trucks i think the trucks are 150 grand some of them are and they they do really well and and props to them it's a that's a really really good question ben um j- just to talk about how that there that there seems to be a contradiction in the idea that the media which used to be kind of Uh, championing and was better when it was championing the working man now because of uh, woke ideology is also suggesting that it's representing the downtrodden but it actually isn't representing the downtrodden in reality is it because you know they can do black lives matter protests till the cows come home and look we all agreed the george floyd thing was a travesty and we needed to have that conversation right but they did that and they they put up the bumper stickers they put you know corporations put black lives matter on their home page and if you i i actually saw a, stu- a study that up here uh, all these big corporations put uh, Black Lives Matter stickers on because they wanted to inoculate themselves from actual scrutiny. That's what really happened here, right? They didn't make any big fundamental changes. Their corporate boards are still 
mostly white. They've let a few women on and they might have one or two diverse people there, you know, as the kind of as the kind of demonstration models. But they there there has not been as a result of all of the woke yammering any massive changes that actually lift people up. It's all it's all based on a victim mentality or, 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 or sorting out who the victims are and championing them, but they don't actually do anything that makes their lives better, right? We cannot talk about violence in Southside Chicago. We can. I have a friend there, Pastor Donovan Price, who I speak to um, once in a while, who is a, he's a, uh, an African-American street pastor who goes to the scenes of these terrible shootings. And he does the most beautiful thing you can do in the world, which is witnessing for people in crisis, right? So he goes to when the body has dropped, and this is mostly black-on-black violence, the body's dropped and shot, mostly teenagers. He goes and he he witnesses with the family and he sits with the dying boy and he hmm. helps the family of the victim and the shoot. Like, he's really a very interesting cat. Nobody is in there right now doing the work that needs to be done to lift those people up. It's all nonsense. It's all bumper stickers. It's all sort of yammering and put, you know, put your, well, the companies in Canada did an orange shirt day for our, our abor, you know, our Aboriginal or okay. Indigenous brothers and sisters, with whom I feel a real connection, because I did a lot of stories with them over the years, and they did get totally screwed over uh, in many, many ways. And, and they're lovely, lovely people. But, but demanding the corporations that, that the woke media suck up to, right? demanding that you put an orange shirt on for Orange Shirt Day, that doesn't help Indigenous people in any serious way. There are no Indigenous people in the media business here in a serious way. There now is a a network for them, but most production companies, this is my former business, uh, don't have Indigenous people working there, right? It's all about T-shirts and bumper stickers and making judgments and who said what in their Twitter feed 15 years ago that was not very nice about Indigenous people. That's what they're doing. So they're not really aligned with poor. They don't like poor people. And that's why they were mean to truckers. They don't like truckers because they're mostly white and male. And they, you know, they, they make terrible assumptions. They were all, our prime minister called them all Nazis, which is absolute nonsense, right? He called them white supremacists. And there was that weird photo op with the, <laughs> some sort of Nazi flag showed up for five minutes or two right. minutes. And they ran him off, right? They ran yeah. that guy off. You know, he was probably an operative of some sort, but I don't know that. But they ran him off. It's like, they're not stupid. You know, it, it you makes know? me think it's not just about poor. Um, it's not just about wealth. And it's it, it, it has something to do with culture. But I wonder if it's not... Uh, not just a resentment, but some sort of resentment toward productivity, maybe. I, I'm just going to shoot from the hip and say that these people who are journalists, these knowledge creators uh, in the academy and in the media, they produce yeah. knowledge and they you know, produce basically something that is just about attention. There might be uh, some sort of um, inferiority complex for somebody who wakes up at four in the morning, drives a rig, you know, 12 hours you know, for for five days and then gets yeah. to see their family. Yeah. You know, it's, it, it might not just be about class. It might be about the relationship that the truckers have to the world, to the real world, to 
time and to productivity that is different and distinct from these knowledge brainy people of which I'm, I'm one myself. Um, <laughs> well, look, I completely agree. I think it's that too. You know, someone calls it the laptop class, you know, mm-hmm. the technocracy, whatever. Yes, there is a massive divide, I think, based on, on, on how we even work, right? And how we perceive our work. I think that's, mm-hmm. that's absolutely true. But what here's what shocked me and, and really drove something home for me about the, the way the media dealt with the truckers protest. The mainstream media, uh, ran with the prime minister's narrative unquestioningly, right? He, he made, he said, he, he used the phrase that they held unacceptable views. I mean, for a, for an elected official to use that phrase and not understand the historical horror of that kind of a comment is like, it's so Marxist, right? Like, it's just, it's like Pravda, you know, you can't, right? He said that, he said they were misogynist. What is that about? What is he, how would he even know that? I mean, it's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. He called them Nazis. I mean, he, oh, and, and a small fringe minority. And mm-hmm. what freaked our prime minister out was, that the small fringe minority, as it drove through the country, and this was a, I, I can't even tell you, I don't have words yet, because uh, I'm still processing it, but to explain to you how important that drive from British Columbia to Ottawa was those four or five days with people on overpasses, people who had been beaten down, traumatized, who'd lost kids to suicide, who'd lost their jobs and lost their houses and been smeared and slandered by the medical community here for not wanting to get a vaccine. I mean, finally coming out and saying, someone's coming to the rescue. I can say what I want to say. That Those heady, heady days. I mean, people were dancing a jig. They were singing Oh Canada. It was like and Woodstock. It, I know? think it, that outburst, and I don't mean that derogatorily that came out wrong, but there was a, from what I saw with the footage and the, you know, the, the social media was that there was a coming together. There was a, a communal totally. activity in the defying this isolation, yep. this two years of prison Absolutely. camp. And then Absolutely. bursting out of that, bursting out of those chains, bursting out of those walls, walking across this line that was just drawn in the sand by these bureaucrats um, yeah. could be very, very threatening to those people who want to draw the lines. The, the same person, Trudeau, who said unironically that he very much admires the totalitarian state of China. <laughs> I know, I've seen that, that clip. I know. Like, I did clap. Say All these hot moms are clapping. Oh, isn't he so cute? I China. I know. It just shows how shallow we are. But, and, well, he's also Prime Minister Blackface. Let's not forget that gem. Mm-hmm. You know, I think there's three photographs of him in blackface, which I don't, I think it's terrible when people do it, but I don't think they should be canceled, except they let him off the hook and everybody else yeah. is terrible, right? So that's probably, but what I was saying about journalists and the truckers was that, yeah. you know, there was, it was an historic moment in Canada that people will never forget, the people who loved them, and many people did love them. I went to a protest here, I didn't get to Ottawa because of a snowstorm, but, mm-hmm. but um, people were crying and people were smiling and dancing and there were connections being made across all socioeconomic groups it felt like a new tribe everything is very tribal right now and i say frequently to my girlfriend who i talk to almost every day to stay sane 
Um, we have to move. I don't know if I can live with these people anymore, right? And I think what the truckers did was they brought out other members of my new tribe, right? And we were all, there were doctors and lawyers and truckers and housewives and teachers, and we were all together and um, happy. And abs- people say it was full of love. It was, it was really, it was like Woodstock. It was insane, right? And, um, and the media never went down there the columnists who are writing the most egregious things about them now and these are learned oxford educated columnists for our papers here are writing things that are a complete nonsense and b utterly cruel and exposing a huge huge class divide that is as i said earlier is really coloring the coverage here it's i think we're in a very very dangerous time and I don't know what the future holds for us as we kind of split apart because the Ukraine story is kind of doing the same thing, the same people on different sides for, you know, for, for various reasons, mostly based on propaganda, by the way, but. Okay. That, that's a big uh, question (laughs) or place to dive into, but before we get into the Ukraine, there, uh, there's a question of can't, these media elites or whoever it is that's trying to uh, warp the reality specifically of the truckers uh, protest and, and then all the things that that was bringing out, uh, all the values that that was laying claim to, aren't, are they not just de- delegitimizing themselves? Are they yeah. not just becoming less and less meaningful or are they kind of, taking a bunch of people that believe in their narrative and and separating off in some sort of way that leaves this other class, this other tribe in need of journalists and uh, let's just even say teachers and the the entire uh, portion of the uh, class that would be the knowledge producers. To serve those, people. yeah, that's a really good question about who who is going to you know to serve the citizenry now that the media has revealed itself to be utterly lacking in fairness and truth telling. Right? I don't know if they know how bad they are. That's a really interesting question because I do feel part of what we're experiencing now, and you know. Let me just preface this by saying I have had anxiety for two years. And I've had anxiety for two years because I knew who Fauci was. I had big questions about COVID policy. I wrote a letter in March 2020 to an American journalist who I won't name and predicted everything that happened, that has happened, right? I knew it was going to be bad. I could see the media lining up to take dictation from Fauci. I could see that they had their numbers wrong. I believe Johnny Anitas when he said this is going to be a fiasco. I knew the lockdowns weren't working. I knew the vaccine was going to be tricky, uh, especially if they were just accepting it without any long-term term data, that the kind of headspace around it. So, so I'll say I've had anxiety for two years. It's been really difficult for me, um, and it gets harder. I need, I need a break from the world we live in right now. It's really fucking hard, pardon my language. Um, it's really hard. It's really hard. I'm tired, right? I'm tired of it. Um, but Matthias Desmet did ring a bell for me right he it part of my dna shifted when i first 
heard the first time I heard him, he was being interviewed by that German Reiner, whatever his name is, lawyer, about like a year ago, and he brought up the mass formation psychosis issue. And I thought this does kind of explain something because Ben, for me, part of the anxiety is not just knowing it was going to go bad, watching it go bad. It was the the turn in the culture where these kind of inept and cruel public health officials were telling us to snitch on our neighbors. We're saying that our loved ones had to die alone in hospital and we could say goodbye on an iPad and we agreed with that? Really? Like, you know, that, that you know, we're vaccinating children without a, a, a good risk-benefit ratio. We locked our old people away in long-term care alone in their rooms for weeks at a time. They were wishing for death because of the loan. They didn't, they didn't say, do you want to risk COVID and get a last Christmas with your grandchildren since you're 85? Maybe you want to do that. We'll give you. They didn't do that. They locked them away to die in their rooms, mostly of a broken heart, I think many of them, right? Mm-hmm. Like, well, we can't do that again. We, we, and, and for me, the anxiety comes from my friends and neighbors uh, and, you know, the people in my community not seeing that the way that I did right? It's when these bad things happened, the scary part wasn't just that they happened, it's that people weren't noticing that they were happening. They were kind of going along with it, right? They were, like, um, Laura Dodsworth wrote a book called State of Fear about the, um, she's in Britain, she's brilliant, about the um, behavioral psychologists who were purposely making the citizenry afraid in order to get compliance. So they were inflating the numbers, inflating the way the media dealt with it. Awful, awful mm-hmm. thing to do to a population. And um, I think that that did in part what Matthias Desmond was talking about, which is this psychosis that happened and made people do bad things that they wouldn't do again. But I've got I've got to figure it out. Like, how can I trust my fellow citizens now if I know that they think it's okay that my, say, my husband, who's 72 and who I love very much, has to die alone in the hospital next year because there's a COVID outbreak. That's not going to happen for me. Like, do I have to go, like, in there and pull, like, but that people think that's okay is very, very unsettling for me. I don't think I'll get over it, actually. I don't think I will. I'm mad. Yeah, um, condolences. No, that's a lot to process. It's really difficult. But that trucker, the honkening, broke through that a little bit. It, a lot. it lifted the a veil. A lot, a lot, a lot. It was like an emperor's new clothes thing, right? People said, yeah, okay, I was thinking that. Now they're saying it. I can say it too. That's exactly, exactly what it was. And the media were not prepared to let the COVID narrative go. They're complicit in it. They, you know, much of what was reported was wrong. I mean, remember this, Ben, they wouldn't allow a conversation about natural immunity, which is now not only accepted, but some studies suggest it's better than the vaccine. But the media was like not talking about it, not asking about it. Now we still have mandates here in Canada and natural immunity does not get you a stamp on your card. 
right? It doesn't count still after all this time. And the reason they get away with it, never forget this. This is kind of the key point of our failing legacy media. As long as the technocracy and the bureaucrats and the politicians know that the media is not going to act as a bulwark and hold them accountable and ask hard questions, they will keep doing it, right? It's like the Hunter Biden laptop story, right? Biden was elected because the media would not touch that story. Social media canceled anybody who, New York Post was kicked off Twitter over it, right? And that I believe that that, those moves are one of the reasons that Joe Biden is elected. It'd be, is, is, look how that's working out. Not very well right now. But, but so, so, so that's my point that they, as long as the media are, are complicit and towing the party line, okay. they, the, the people who did this will never have to change their behavior because they're not going to be held accountable, right? No one's okay. going to jail. Over okay. It. Well, th- there's, Without a functioning media or a media that's independent of the uh, of the elites, then you're going to have a huge population of elite adjacent people believing what the media are saying. I still am shocked when I speak with uh, people of a, uh, you know, a boomerish uh, age range who only consume CNN, and they yeah. thought that the trucker protest was a riot. They thought it was just riots swarming through uh, all yeah. of Canada. When the the same people were n- not calling a spade a spade in 2020, right? The the whole yeah. 2020 that, that that that's not right. And the violence ratio. Do you have any? Uh, have there been any studies? Have you seen the data on how much violence was uh, addended to or perpetrated perpetrated by the trucker convoy? I in Ottawa, I don't think there was any. Like, I, I, I don't the, believe... the police said that the crime actually went down during this. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, they were picking garbage up the street. They were feeding homeless people. Yeah. They were having dance parties. The bouncy castles were real. They, had, they put in a hot tub, which I thought was really funny. But, but there, wasn't, there wasn't violence. That, that's a lie. I mean, I can't say that one person maybe didn't do a dumb shit thing, but look, at that, that, that it was yeah. not violent. It was one of the most peaceful protests ever in the history of this country. And anybody who says anything else is lying about it. It's just, it didn't happen that way. And, and you know how you know that because nobody ever gives you a specific incident in any of the media coverage. They do these, they make these declarative statements about things and then they never back them up with facts or stories mm-hmm. to go along mm-hmm. with them, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So who holds the media accountable if they're only accountable to the powers that be? No one. Okay. So I what mean, do we I, do I, in that instant? And how do we go along an independent media path without then becoming, uh, you know, assigned alt-right, you know, radical libertarian, you know, smears, uh, you know, like, like Joe Rogan, let's just say. Joe Rogan's yeah. completely raked over the coals because yeah. he's actually lifting the veil. Wow, and so he he's ever. got to be kicked out. So anybody in yeah. the wake, and I am in the wake of Joe Rogan, I would probably not have this YouTube channel were it not for his uh, involvement with Brett Weinstein and giving Brett a platform back in the day, right? That just yeah. led to the whole uh, series of events. So what do we do? Yeah, that's a really good question because they're ramping up. You know, the the more that Joe Rogan, who has a huge audience, Tucker Carlson has a huge audience right now, the more people who are not towing the narrative party line are being successful, and they are being successful hugely. Like I, Joe Rogan did not get 
COVID right at the beginning, right? He had Aust, what's his name, Osterholm on, who was doing the Neil Ferguson crazy numbers and stuff. And mm. I thought, oh, Joe, come on, you know, think think it through, think critically. And then when Joe got it, he really got it. And God bless him, because when he has somebody smart on, um, then uh, about COVID, and that really, because his audience is so huge, it's it's a huge, huge shift in how it in how it's perceived ivermectin for one look at how they came after him over ivermectin right so so i i think as people people are peeling off legacy media they're finding us and as people peel off legacy media and find us more of these kind of weird fact checking misinformation disinformation you know people who accuse us of terrible things will be coming out of out of the out of the woodwork and make no mistake i mean jen saki um actually made a comment about joe rogan and and i believe implied that perhaps they that maybe biden's office had called spotify too like i don't know if literally that happened but she said we you know we agree with that we should do more more about that and here's to suppress misinformation according to what they call misinformation even though they've been wrong 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 and then they're changing the narrative as they go along to, to be on the right side of things so no absolutely and so so what they're doing is they're you know they're they're trying to tamp joe rogan down because he is exposing not just terrible things in the world but how bad the media is right let's mm-hmm. like talk about lying i mean the, the fall of Afghanistan, that kind of 48 or 72 hours hmm. where it fell and the Taliban took over and they left the Bagram Air Base. And I remember there was a suicide bomber and all those lovely soldiers. It's just, it's just a huge, huge shit show. Totally mismanaged by Joe. I mean, he should just be not even there, right? It's just, anyway, it's another story. But, but, but. That over that period of time, the number of lies that were told were so egregious day after day after day after day after day. So the idea that that administration would accuse Joe Rogan of of, uh, of presenting misinformation, it, it's like laughable off the charts. I mean, it is absurd. It is ludicrous. You know, they just lie and get away with it because the media likes or used to like Joe Biden. So they they know, as kind of proves my point, right? No one's Mm. calling them to account for these things. So if we are in such a frail or the media is playing catch up for an administration, whatever administration in Canada or in the United States with Biden or Trudeau, they're following along with that. Then there's a bunch of scrappy upstarts or legacy media. uh, What would you call yourself here? Not a gumshoe anymore, but you're, you're a post journalist. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what I'm. Sort of a recovering. I, I don't know what mm-hmm. I am. Yeah. I mean, I'm. I'm a critically thinking, sort of old timer podcaster. I guess I don't know. I do some journalism on the show. I do some investigative stuff. Not much, but mm-hmm. but I'm really just trying to make people think more critically about all the stuff that they're being hammered with in legacy media right now, you know, so look at a different way. Given the state of what we've just covered now, Afghanistan happens, COVID happens. We know that the media is the water boy of these administrations. What happens when something like the Ukraine happens? How are people supposed to know what's going on? How, how is the independent consumer of information supposed to know who to trust in this environment and then what to do with the information that they do get, right? So when a major 
international crisis like Ukraine, which doesn't mm. necessarily directly affect the Americas so much, but it's still, it's a big story and there's human lives I involved and it's uh, necessary in a difficult situation. How do we get the correct information and then translate that into the correct action? Well, it's nearly impossible. And, and one the, kind of the harbinger of what's happened with Ukraine was that really smart people like Matt Taibbi got it wrong. Like he, he did a piece the other day where he said he'd done a journalistic face plant and he did the honorable thing. And he said, you know, I got it wrong. I didn't think Putin was going to invade. Right. Mm -hmm. But here's why he didn't think that I'm, I'm extrapolating because I kind of felt the same way. He didn't think they were going to invade because the American intel services have been so utterly compromised for the last five or six years, right? Like, like Russiagate was actually Intelgate. What happened there, that, that hoax, that monstrosity, that undermining of a president, whether you like him or not, I mean, th this is not democracy when you've got the intel agencies actively working against a duly elected president. I mean, you know, people don't trust them anymore. So when, and this is the danger, Ukraine shows, like, People did not believe what they were saying about the coming Russian invasion because they've been caught with their pants down for the last five years lying on behalf of the Democratic Party. So that's a big problem. So so let's talk about Ukraine because I, I did a show on it this weekend. Um, I spend a lot of time thinking and reading before I do I do these things. I was up at 2.30 in the morning prepping for the show and mm. watching some old videos of a man I admired very much, Stephen Cohen who was a Russian scholar who died last year, at probably the, 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 the preeminent Russian scholar in the world, in my view, and many others. And he very courageous, he was at, uh, I think he might have been Princeton, but I'm not sure. But he wrote books and stuff. But um, he was saying then, and had been saying throughout the, the, the Trump presidency, watching the anti-Putin rhetoric ramping up for political reasons, right? Hillary Clinton started it to save her, her political campaign, right? Um, and all the media, Putin's a monster, and Tulsi Gabbard supports Putin because she questioned... So you're talking the, about 2016? Is this what you're... Where, yes, I'm talking about 20... Well, it started in 2016 when yeah. Hillary started the, tr the, the Trump is a Putin's puppet stuff, yeah, right? Okay, like, in, yeah. In, yeah. And then it went all through the media that Putin became the punching bag within the American media who were supporting the Democratic Party. And if you question foreign policy, you get called Putin's puppet. That's what was happening there, right? Yeah. So so the point that I'm trying to make is that this Stephen Cohen is a guy I admire very much and he very courageously was saying, look, I don't think he's going to do that. Russiagate's obviously a lie. He was saying it's not. That didn't happen. I can prove it. And he, he because he moved in uh, very, very liberal circles, his wife is the publisher of um, The Nation magazine in New York, very progressive, Katrina Vandenhuvel, his widow now, sadly. Hmm. Um, but he had the courage to say, look, this is dangerous. We can't, we can't keep doing this. We can't keep demonizing this guy and not talking. It's a real problem, right? So I read more of his writings. I admired him and, and did more research before I did my show. And what I learned about... What was really going on in Ukraine versus the the rhetoric and the simplistic takes by the government uh, was absolutely it was terrifying for me because we're in the same leaky boat we were in around COVID and also you know the Iraq War and the WMDs which I 
protested against because I didn't believe there were WMDs, and I was right about that, as many people were. Mm-hmm. And, he, and, and the, the, here's the thing about Ukraine, Ben. There are nukes here. Putin has them. America has them. America is saying Putin's a nutcase, right? So he's, and that may be true, it may not be true. But if, if he is a nutcase, he's a nutcase with nukes, Right. ICBMs from the Soviet Union, as I understand it, can be in North America in about 10 minutes. Like this, it, it's, it's over. Nobody's talking about this in the media, which shows how completely stupid they are. And setting up a narrative where it's the brave people of Ukraine standing strong against Putin, the dictator, and we should never talk to him and we must do whatever it takes. What does that mean? Are we going to send troops in there now through NATO? Is that what we're going to do? Are we going to get into a hot war with a guy who's got nukes and maybe nuts? I don't know if he's nuts, but using their narrative. That is why these things become very, very dangerous when the media simplifies it. They sign on to a narrative, and that's what it is, and they won't talk about anything else. Putin is mad because he didn't want NATO countries arming up on his border. He didn't want Ukraine to be in NATO for a reason. He felt it was a security threat. They promised him after Uh, the Soviet Union came apart in the early 90s, that they were never going to let NATO in. That's what he was looking for. And I'm not saying that he should have invaded because he didn't get it in a meaningful way. I'm not saying that. I I decry the war just because I'm saying think critically about it doesn't mean I support the war, that I even support Putin. We have to move past that stuff, right? And understand what's really going on here. It is the threat of a nuclear war versus a bumper sticker media campaign, right, that is supporting absolutely stupid American foreign policy. We can't keep doing this. And the fact that Biden is in office because the media wanted him there and he's mismanaging this as he's mismanaged um, Afghanistan and many other things, it's, 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 it's terrifying, right? Hmm. So yeah. I, I'm not a f- foreign policy expert whatsoever, but I know that energy is involved as well. And I know that uh, Europe is, at least Germany is heavily reliant on Russian energy. Why wouldn't, I don't know how to even approach this conversation. Why wouldn't Russia just screw with Europe that way rather than taking over but what your your point is is that but, but let's stick okay. with energy that's a good point okay. because because the, the, and again this is how stupid these narratives are in our political life right now especially for you guys but we've got it going on here too you know in, in order to appease the progressives like AOC and the Green New Deal they made America not energy independent anymore right that's what they did and that means that America is going to be buying um, oil from the Soviet or from Russia right now. I mean, that's what happened. So my question is, did the NATSEC team in Washington sit down with the Green New Deal team and say, we can't really do this right now because Putin might be tricky and we got to, you know, we've got other priorities besides that, right? Like they didn't okay. sort of do that. So that's why energy is important right okay. now. Okay. Okay. So following that, yeah. The infection of activism or activistic thinking, which wants to get a certain result, or uh, let's just say with environmentalism, they gun for this green planet or this green agenda, and they 
because they're activists, their job is not to be correct. It's just yeah. to get their way. Yeah. And that's now smart. we see, which is okay. That's a, that's a pressure. It's lobby. It should be uh, counter pressured too. But once it gets installed into the federal government itself, then the people who make sense of the world aren't there to learn about the world or to see the world correctly. They're there to try to force this agenda onto the world. And so just let's say uh, that one general a couple of years ago or a year. Yeah, it was a couple of years ago. He talked about, I uh, know it was about a year ago, I think about the biggest threat. We need to worry about white rage or something like that. You have yeah. this woke rhetoric coming in and it starts with race stuff. And then it starts with the gender stuff or the, the LGBT yeah. stuff. Like the director of MI6 said that, Today, I think either today or yesterday on Twitter, he said, yeah, Ukraine's really bad, but we have to keep up these tweets supporting LGBTQ plus I. That's the one thing, the thing that most distinguishes us and our values from Putin is the virtue they're signal nuts. of that. They're, they're mental. So they're mental. So, so yeah. they're doing all this virtue signaling, but we yeah. know with regard to environmental policy that it's the same rubric, it's the same playbook yeah. to get your way. You don't understand the world, just like Mark said, or to, to switch around what Mark said. The job of the philosopher or the activist is not to see the world or to understand the world. It's to change the world. So once we see, we, we, we see that, you know, the, with the race stuff and the gender stuff, and there's, there's good values there, you know, with liberalism and letting yes. people live and stuff. But yeah. the activist mode of engaging with the world is not accurate. And so when you have people in power that are pandering to this and allowing this stuff to infect the arm of the state, then they're going to be making even worse decisions because they're not even operating with real data. And they're more prone to being delusional about what's actually going on on the actual ground. So to go back that to what you That is the smartest saying, thing I've heard. That's the smartest thing I've heard, like, in a couple of weeks. It's, that's exactly right. Okay. It's exactly, exactly right. You know why? Because once we start saying math is racist and that two and two yeah. is not four, right? And that men with full junk attached should be able to walk through women's change rooms with little girls and they can be naked and it's not sexual assault. Once we start accepting absurd, you know, men on women's swim teams winning every prize and not letting the women complain about it, what the actual hell? Like this stuff is not fact-based, right? It's like they're trying to drive us bonkers and, and accept things that are irrational, untrue, and not fact-based. And that's so smart because that is now infecting, yeah. right? It's infecting uh, public policy in a serious way. The army in the States, the, you know, the, I forget the name of the general, is it General Milley who's so woke? Like you've got one guy down there who's pretty I think woke. that's He's, the guy who, who said white rage is the biggest threat to biggest thing. And they're like, and they're purging all these guys yeah. from, yeah. you know, because they don't have, here it comes again, acceptable views, right? Like meaning maybe yes. they voted for Trump. They don't yeah. like that, okay. right? That's so dangerous. I want a little toxic masculinity in my, uh, in my military force. I want those guys. Those are the guys who save us. Hmm. And I, 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 that's who I want leading the charge if I need to be rescued, frankly. Mm -hmm. yeah. There's a, and to go back to the trucker 
protest or the convoy, uh, there's a lot of really great video, uh, you know, viral video of these yeah. manly men, manly you men? know, uh, scraping ice off the sidewalk and dressing down journalists and just telling journalists yeah. to screw off. And it was just this, uh, th those people who are connected to productivity, connected to uh, a lens viewing the world that we might from a liberal standpoint might be regressive to a certain degree or not, uh, not woke enough to a certain degree, uh, too conservative. Those yeah. people actually, when those people are accepted by the more liberal minded people and there's a conversation going on, then facts have to matter because, yeah. because when, when we argue, we have to get down to the facts in order to see who's right. But if you kick all the people out who disagree with you, then the facts, you don't need to, dress up the facts anymore. You don't need to find the facts anymore. Yeah. You, yeah. you just figure out how to get your way, which is totally different than understanding what's going on and understanding what's going to happen when you do something. Right? That's exactly right. And I, I certainly have experienced that in the last five or so years with various people I'm close to who some have been more woke than others. And when I meet an argument with facts, I'm actually told, I don't want to hear facts. Don't, don't hit me with that. They, they don't want it, right? Okay. And around COVID, it's the same. Like, I've had discussions with people who were totally COVIDian. I don't mean okay. that in a mean way, but I mean scared, frightened, whatever, believing that there's like 9 million children in hospitals in North America dying of COVID, right? And you say, well, mm -hmm. actually, it's not really true. They don't want to hear it. You know, they're like, okay. they're like, uh, in the exorcist when the holy water is coming and she's saying yeah. it burns it burns you know yeah. that's they don't want facts facts yeah. kind of you know, readjust their interior yeah. life or something it's really weird and the same narrative captured those same people when it comes to black lives matter with if yeah. you ask them how many black unarmed men are killed by police every year it was like 17 or 20, but they're thinking yeah. thousands upon thousands. Same thing with COVID, thousands upon thousands. So yeah. that cognitive dissonance or that disconnection from reality, when applied to a situation wherein nuclear arms are at play or potentially at play, yeah. then it's it's end game, right? It, it yeah. where does it go from there? I mean, COVID was pretty bad with the lockdowns and all that stuff, and the yeah. suppression suppression of speech and and uh, how you live your life. But when we get to a position like Ukraine and then we have a narrative that we can't really question anymore because we kicked all questioning out. All questions are gone. Yeah. And, and if we, you question you're a Putin Putin loving you're, you're person Putin who Putin, wants yeah. yeah, you're a Putin puppet and you want to see all those lovely people in the Ukraine yeah. die a terrible death, which of course is absolute nonsense. But and even let me the, just Yeah, okay. No, go ahead, Ben. Sorry. Well, just one one last thing. And then even the intelligence community, like the CIA and the F... Well, the CIA themselves came out with this woke, weird thing where I'm a Latino, bipolar, uh, <laughs> half-gendered uh, person, and I'm a part of the CIA because they're so inclusive. So we know that that signaling's there. So we know that there is a skew because that signaling kicks out anything that questions it. So we know I agree. That, that it's a thousand not, percent. Yeah. So so they're ideologically they're tilted so far that now a narrative can come in to play with the CIA with this intelligence apparatus where it will distort reality. It will distort their ability to connect with reality and then convey that reality to the outside world based on if we trust them or not. Right. So the whole thing, the whole thing is so dangerous. 
I know. It's interesting. Well, it's really funny you said that because one of the things I, I learned, I'm on Twitter too much because I use it to promote our show, but mm-hmm. but um, I, I found that, it wasn't scientific, but I found that the people who were most attached to the COVID narrative in a rigid fashion all had pronouns in their bios, all of them. And if you look today at the people who are uncritically looking at Ukraine and say and putting like a blue and yellow banner and I stand with Ukraine and la la la, same people, right? It's like they've lost the ability to think critically. Feeling emotion and victimhood are and driving yeah. everything they they see and it's it's the lens through which they they uh, they view the world and mm-hmm. and these are people who've been wrong about most things during COVID and they're now they're not wrong in supporting the the Ukrainian people but they're they're wrong in thinking like Zelensky was installed by an oligarch Ukraine is a client state of the American State Department Victoria Newland who is a a State Department official was caught on audio tape picking who in the opposition should do what. I mean, of course Russia doesn't like that. So to to present this as a functioning, innocent little democracy is absolutely wrong. It's sad that the real people there are getting hurt. I don't approve of that or like it. But... But, you know, to portray even Zelensky as this big, you know, hero, it's way, way okay. more complicated than that. Way, okay. Not to mention the fact that the Biden family made millions of dollars out of Ukraine, too. So they're yeah, not, he's not, not supposed exactly, to mention that. So just redact that from that. That, that, that never <laughs> happened. But the, the same thing. So here's the here's another trick that that's played um, yeah. to, to ratchet it down somewhat with anti-racism. If you're against anti-racism then you are for racism. That's how they right. frame it. So if you're against yeah. if you're against these policies, if you're against supporting Ukraine because you start to ask questions, you're actually pro Putin. Because yes. there's a difference between the people on the ground and then the apparatus, the state apparatus, and then the, you know, geopolitical games that are happening up there. So yeah, we exactly. can support the actual drown downtrodden, the people who are walking, you know, 20 miles overnight to get into Poland and the people who are, you know, being killed and defending their country. Those are different. And standing with those is different than standing for the state or unquestionably following whatever narrative plays out on, on that, on that geopolitical level. The same thing happens with racism. The same thing happens with homophobia, transphobia, all these things where, where real people and real values are at play are then co-opted by a movement that demands you to act and to believe and to behave in a certain way, which is different than actually helping the people. A thousand percent. I completely agree with that. And I, I, I would like if the the chant became not I stand with Ukraine, but rather speak to Putin, speak to Putin. Like they, they should open a back channel. Okay. They should be having, you know, responsible discussions and trying to meet in a back channel way so nobody looks like they're capitulating. Well, they, maybe uh, they are. Maybe they are. Right? They, they, and they, I, I don't know that they're okay. not. Yeah. But I think the, the cry that we need to do more or if that is looking like some kind of a military solution or, or you know, are sending NATO troops, Article 5 is what they're talking about now. I mean, that's just okay. not something we should be entertaining at all at this point. I don't think it's so just bad. There, there's a pattern of depersoning that's uh, alive and well in this ideologically possessed group that is informing academia and the media and the Democratic Party, sorry to say, but it's true. Yeah. 
uh, that that whole wokeness thing. They, they have a they have a pattern of behavior where they just deperson somebody, they other somebody, really extremely. Mm-hmm. So doing that with Putin would you're saying be the wrong maneuver. It would be to open up talks to to connect with the person to not proceed down this othering, cut him out of the conversation, do all these weird passive aggressive economic uh, sanctions where we're not actually sanctioning the energy that we still want. We're just going to sanction this other thing, and even yeah. Italy's like, well, we're not going to sanction our Gucci uh, luxury items. We don't, <laughs> we don't want to stop selling those things, yeah. right? So it's a bunch of half-assed measures. Yeah. Uh, that then play into this, uh, allow people to kind of say, yeah, we're, we're harming him, we're not harming him, but you still see that there's a lot in play that the populace or the popular narrative could be more about, less about war and more about diplomacy. Maybe, Absolutely. Well, no, that's true. And, and I worry that, you know, we've got people like, um, like Harry and Meghan. I mean, this is where we are with, with the Ukraine. Are now. we talking be- about the UK uh, celebrities, uh, the, the royal people? Yeah. yeah, I'm American, so I, they just look like r- mannequins to me. I, well, me too. And now they're well, they're yours now. You can have them. They're oh, in California, okay. but I thought but, they were but, out in Ukraine now. Isn't Harry like digging a trench trying to kick out the <laughs> Russian? Tr- But they did feel the need, as they do on every issue, whether we want to hear from them or not, to make a statement. And when, when Harry and Meghan are speaking, you can pretty much tell that this is a this is kind of, this is the woke signal right it is the, the repeating of the bumper sticker idea of we stand with ukraine without i mean they probably couldn't even find it on a map you know but that's what's happening so so for me that well, is not megan but harry harry had a good education megan's an american so he actually did but i still think he's, he's i just think he's a bit of a nitwit i i don't you know i don't know he's, got a he's nice not job. that smart yeah, he does have a nice job. Yeah, but anyway, so uh, but the point of of bringing them up is to say that they they kind of rubber stamp any woke cause of the moment, okay. right? Yeah. So they've okay. now they've now made their statement about Ukraine, and and my fear is that they're ramping that this this kind of um, the vilification of Putin is being ramped up in such a way that it's going to be hard to have a diplomatic solution to this, right? It's going to okay. be. It's hard, and we don't we, we don't want that. I'll tell you something. John Kenneth Galbraith, the famous, brilliant American thinker, said to me in the late 1970s, we were sitting in, in a rental car under the bridge at Ivor's Salmon House in Seattle, and he oh, was... you got around. I did get around. And he was promoting a movie called If You Love This Planet. It was a documentary about nuclear war. He was a very smart anti-nuke guy. And he said, you don't make... It's safer for yourself by making it more dangerous for your neighbor, right? That's what he said. And that is essentially the Ukraine situation in a nutshell. Putin was feeling more and more freaked out about Ukraine being a client state and going into NATO and being right on the border. That's that's it in a nutshell. It was kind of the reverse Cuban Missile Crisis, actually. that's This is a, a good analogy for it. So people need to, like, shut up and go and read some stuff and listen to some smart people and maybe go listen to some Steve Cohen at the 92nd Street Y on YouTube. There's that video. You should listen to what he has to what, say. What's it called? 90 s- the 92nd Street Y. Um, they have these speaker series, and Stephen Cohen did a, a bit for them, I think, in 2019, just before he died, actually, um, about Russia. It's really a significant interview with Dan Rather and his wife, actually. Okay. Katrina was moderating it. Yeah, it's worth really worth watching. 
So we were going to talk about the uh, honking, but that uh, got swept aside. Um, <laughs> I know. But it all plays into the same kind of uh, problem, um, the same kind of caterwauling elite, uh, like what Trudeau's doing with the the finance stuff. That was just I don't I don't understand that. I mean, and now we know. You know, he shut down the truckers' finances, or he went after them and froze their bank accounts, or had the banks do that for him, yeah. uh, extrajudicially, without any warrants or anything like that. And Biden didn't. Biden didn't say a peep. Not a single Western no. leader said a peep. So we know that they would do the same thing, given the right circumstances. We know oh, that they absolutely. would just use. Well, they did it to, remember, they did it to, to WikiLeaks, too, when they yeah. started going after Julian Assange, right? Well, they've been doing this about little like little guys. They, they, they kick off Alex Jones, you know? Yeah. You know, they, they, they target people that they can get away with. They, they might have tried to, to go a little bit overboard with Joe Rogan, but they know that they, we know that they will cancel people. That's a yeah. part of the way that this thing continues to gain mass and but by just completely cutting out any... Uh, you know, adverse voices. So yeah. where does that leave Canada and where does that leave the independent media uh, consumer uh, to figure out who to listen to and then how to speak to their representatives that don't want to listen to them anymore? Yeah. Right. Well, you know something, we, I'll just talk about the money for a minute. That was brought in by Christopher Freeland, who is the uh, deputy prime minister and who is in the running to be the next prime minister. I'm Freeland. not sure. She'll... Freeland is the one who's twitching next to Trudeau. So weird. What is I think it, it's her conscience. She's the last one with the conscience. He's completely, he's completely su sublimated his conscience. <laughs> and now she's yeah. like frizzing out about it that's what i think it's really really it's strange weird. Oh, and i know it is weird i don't figure it out but um you know she may be the next prime minister but i i think this may come back to haunt her um the the uh speeches in the senate which may be why he rescinded the emergencies act suggested that it wasn't going to go through there were there was some real statesman like stuff being said uh, about what it and they statesman like stuff well they it? they people you know we what what bothered everybody about both the the covid uh policy and then the reaction of the truckers was that we have two opposition parties who essentially signed on with the liberals right which means democracies come like our we had a conservative party leader who resigned aaron o'toole he was a complete tool milk toast you know frightened guy right and, and so they were all in lockstep about it there were some people who 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 didn't vote for it but the senate weirdly the boring old senate in canada stood tall and there were some wonderful speeches given in the senate chamber about why the truckers protest was a was a good thing why it was peaceful why they shouldn't have frozen the money why the emergencies act was an overreach so so those things will stand in history mm -hmm. as the protest will you know forever as a as a real as a real moment in time as for the you know the democracy up here yeah. you know we're, we're hurting like we people i know who are smart are saying that this doesn't represent me, and I don't know what the remedy is. The system here has stopped. If, if you have a failing legacy media, if the opposition parties move in lockstep, because maybe because they're infected with the kind of idea that, the globalist idea that the elites figure things out and we must obey, and it seems that they do all agree on that, um, then, we're, then we're sunk. And um, I, I think you may see 
this is really hyperbole here, but you may see people talking about separatism in certain provinces here out west. Again, it comes up once in a while, you know, because of this. If we don't, we'll see. Like, I know you guys have elections coming up and the Democrats are going to get, you know, killed. Um, and that may happen here. But as long as the media are not fair brokers, it's, it's a, how do you, you I don't know how yeah. you get past it. It's a real problem. It's a real problem. One criticism of Canada that I heard, and I don't know to what extent it's true or not, is that over the last few decades, uh, the populace has just become kind of accepting of whatever their leaders do. And yeah. uh, there was just a yeah. great acceptance and not a lot of rebelliousness or no. uh, tetchiness. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> one guest, I said that the problem with Canada is there's no Trump there to push back yeah. against this stuff, you know, however crudely and disgustingly. But maybe the truckers protest. Do you think that that will kind of snowball into some sort of political party? I don't know. Like, we, we do have a guy named Maxime Bernier, who is a... Uh, you know, I, I just don't know. I mean, the Truckers Party, may, that might happen. Um, Canadians are, you know, Canadians are, they tend to be a little passive. You know, we're different, right? We, we, we have socialized medicine up here, too. So our, our experience with COVID-19 was different in many, many ways. You know, the... I, I felt at one point last year that when I was talking to my government I, or to my doctor, I was talking to an arm of the state for the first time ever because I don't agree with a lot of the things they've done. And I've said so. And I mm -hmm. now I, I'm like, wow, if, is this guy listening to my podcast and not liking me and I'm his patient? And, you know, so so socialized So the medicine, doctors were basically walking in lockstep with the entire regime. Oh, it was just brutal. Yeah. Okay. I mean, the doctors up here are so against people who question the vaccine. And there's all kinds of talk about how can we punish people who don't have that, you know, it's just like brutal. But so, so I, I don't, I really don't know where we are. I, I think this is a, an historic time. It's a time of upheaval. I don't see the mainstream media changing their ways. They seem to be digging in harder and harder and harder. And people seem to want to live in a fake reality. They seem to want to live in a narrative driven space where they kind of feel comfortable within these kind of narrow guardrails of acceptability. Mm -hmm. I think that gets back to the Matthias Desmond thing about mass formation psychosis. I think I think some people have been made mentally ill by the news coverage of the last five or six years. And I, I mean, I'm not being facetious, I actually mean that. The rejection of factual information and the the, on al the almost Milgram experiment level cruelty to fellow citizens because their government said it was okay. I mean, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. how do you explain that? It's mm -hmm, weird, mm -hmm. right? Uh, oh, Canada. Oh, Canada, yeah. But the truckers made me happy. They made a lot of people happy. Yeah. We won't forget them. They're wonderful guys. Wonderful guys. So what's uh, what's up with you going forward? What do you have planned for 2022? What's on the roster? Well, like I said at the beginning, I'm really burned out. Uh, you know, it, mm -hmm. I, I'm, I'm sort of worried about my health a bit. I'm tired and, uh, and I'm getting, um, I'm kind of losing my, my mojo a bit. My, mm -hmm. um, my calm, introspective, 
ways are now driven a little bit by anger. So I've got to get that mm. sorted out. The, tr mm. the way the truckers were treated was just the icing on the cake for me. And I, I my stomach is churning a bit and I've, I'm mad at people. I've got a list of names, you know, but I, I also mm. know, Ben, that we have to forgive. You know, I'm a recovering alcoholic. I talk about it a lot because I think it helps people. I've got 22 years sobriety. Watched a lot of people in my tribe, in that tribe, die because of lockdowns. Um, for various reasons, the isolation and the shutting down of 12-step meetings. Who is the genius that thought of that? I mean, it's just ridiculous. So I've got to work. So so what you do when you are in that tribe is you, you really have to learn how to forgive because, you know, hatred. Resentment. And it, yeah, and the resentment. This is this is the poison we give ourselves, right? This makes us sicker. We can't. I can't live this way, and so um, I got to start working on that stuff. I've got to really start working on myself and and maybe changing the way I live my life a little bit. One thing I I miss is nature. You know, I haven't been out in nature as much as I would like to be, and that settles me down a fair bit out in the country. You know, we thought about maybe buying a place out there, but the real estate prices here, like everywhere, have gone insane. You know, it's like... Really? Oh, God. A place Why? in the country here now is like $2 million. Where's the money? I, you know, I don't know. I No one... I, like, I live in midtown Toronto, which is pretty ritzy, um, and... You know, there are, the houses here are six, seven million dollars, and they're selling. There's bidding wars for them. So, you know, that sort of changed my idea of getting a, a nice little farm property. But yeah. I, I, I'm aware that I am not myself. I'm aware that I need to be consciously and mindfully doing things to kind of get back to where I was you know, five years ago. Because you know what happened to me? I spent two and a half years on a five-part Ted Bundy series for Amazon Studios, which was like really awful. I mean, the documentary was brilliant, of course, but yeah, but the content itself. But was the content heavy, was brittle. Was I was okay. interviewing women who'd been, you know, raped by Ted Bundy and parents who's well. One of them, one of the girls, actually, you probably know this. Uh, Susan Rancourt was a Ted Bundy victim, and he got her at Evergreen College. Did yeah. you know that? Yeah. Yes. And I, and this is a really interesting story that is maybe a, an uplifting and spiritual moment for us all. I interviewed her mother and sister about her murder, and we were talking about the execution of Ted Bundy in, I think it was 82, maybe 82. And um, they started crying. Now, I was expecting them to say, yeah, I'm so glad they executed that guy who killed my sister and my daughter, you know. And they, they started crying, and it was a big, uh, beautiful, uh, spiritual kind of crying. And uh, I was really taken aback by it. And I said, you know, why, why are you crying? And they said, we're crying for Ted Bundy. And I said, what do you mean? And they said, well, we're against the death penalty. And if we're against the death penalty, we have to be against the death penalty also for the the person who killed our loved one you can't morally shift around because something has happened to you if you're against it you're against it and she said he was a human being and he had a mother and she loved him the way that i loved susan i mean i just thought well i'm in the presence of spiritual greatness here this is like gandhi level stuff you know i mean it was of course i was sobbing my eyes out mm -hmm. um listening to it but what a gift that was to see and these are country people up in north north west washington state you know country people who just really and probably christian who just really know who they are 
and what they believe in, who stick to their beliefs even in the face of, of yeah. absolute horror. You know, it was a, a miracle kind of conversation. Well, maybe you just need more miracle conversations. Maybe I do. And yeah. and speaking of which, thanks for joining me. This is thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's really great to finally meet you. I'm yeah, was, a fan. It was fun playing ball with you. So yeah. p- please plug your podcast and all of the novels that you've written. <laughs> okay, so the podcast is uh, Trish, what is critical on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher? It's audio only because. It's just easier for a woman my age to do that. You look uh, pretty good for a woman your age. I'd say. Uh, it took a while, Ben. It was like, you know, you should have seen me three hours ago. Like, <laughs> I was on TV in the day, so I know how to do it with the stuff. You know, I know okay. uh, the Kardashian stuff. I know how to do it. <laughs> but, but so it's, it's Trish Wood is critical. Apple Spice Stitcher. I have a website, which is uh, trishwoodpodcast.com. Mm-hmm. And we post it there as well, and we have a Patreon and a PayPal. So, what is it? I, is it uh, essays or interviews or? Uh, it's all long form interviews. So we okay. like the Ukraine thing we did. I think the interview was almost two hours. The shows are usually about two and a half hours long. I do a monologue with some mm-hmm. reporting at the top, and then we do these yeah. long long interviews and then a little kind of a razzmatazz at the end and say goodbye. But we've created a very interesting community of people and I'm so happy for that because they say, as I'm sure they say to you, you're keeping me sane, right? Hmm. Yeah. Well, thank and I you wrote for... a book too. Sorry, I wrote. Okay, a book well, too. yeah. What's your book? What's your book? I wrote a book about the Iraq War, um, and it was published in two thousand and six. Oh wow! Uh, okay. Yeah, it was. Uh, it did really well, and it's maybe something worth. Is it still around? Reading? Yeah. Well, yeah, because you know what Amazon's doing. This is so gross. It was out of print. It did really well critically. It didn't sell super well, but the New York Times loved it, and the San Francisco Chronicle said it was the only book about Iraq that mattered, which was huge. But. Hmm. But um, Amazon now reprints out-of-print books if you buy them. So you can get it. I, I'm not making any money off it, but it is maybe something worth reading just because I interviewed... Do you get um, some royalties, though, right? When they... Oh, no, I haven't paid back the advance yet. I got a really big advance. <laughs> Ouch. I haven't made about yet, but 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 it uh, it is the it is the it's an oral history by mm. the soldiers who fought there. So it really reminds us of how grotesque and absurd warfare is, and that we should not engage in it lightly or in a bumper sticker fashion, because someone's yeah. kids always end up having to go. Yeah, um, yeah. Here's a. Here's to us kind of thinking twice and, and digging in to the issues of the day and not being led by our narratives or our emotions to the extent that we can. Um, and I'm, I'm just, that's a prayer for everyone. For it me. is a prayer. Yeah, yeah, no, it is a prayer. Yeah. 